Um, you would never expect, as Janice said, a 76-year-old woman to have the kind of impact on a 29-year-old hulking bodybuilder personal trainer that, that, that she's had. It's, it's not like a likely friendship that has developed. And I just would encourage you, if you've never actually had a chance to, to meet Janice, a chance is a new face to you on this video, um, just hearing the way that she pours herself out in everyday life scenarios, be it with personal trainers that she meets in Mechanicsburg and then follows to Lebanon, which is a long way, um, or in her day-to-day -day life working at Cumberland Valley High School. Um, it's just an encouragement to me when I talk to her and hear how she just pursues living out her faith in day-to-day -day situations. And we always want to celebrate not just these like huge things like people moving overseas, and those are fantastic. We want to celebrate that as well. But each of us has an opportunity to be faithful and live, speak, and serve as the presence of Jesus where we are. And I think Janice really embodies that well. So, Janice, thank you for letting us share your, uh, your story uh, with us. And thanks to Eric for just doing a fantastic job on the, the video work for us, too, on that. Um, one more announcement that I just wanted to put before you before we move to our teaching time. Uh, next Sunday, in addition to meeting here at 9 for a, a potluck breakfast, a community uh, Christmas celebration, we also have the privilege in our service next Sunday of ordaining Will Kenny as an elder. Uh, I mentioned this last week, and it's in the weekly email as well. Uh, but we just, we're going to have some um, other elders from Liberty Church East that planted us, as well as the Liberty Network, uh, all together here. We'll have Will come up. He'll speak a little bit about his heart to be an elder. We'll talk about what an elder is. And we'll have the privilege then of laying hands on him uh, and ordaining him as an elder for our church. So would really encourage you for many reasons to, to make next week a, uh, an important one to, to be here uh, and worship with us. Uh, if you have Bibles, go ahead and make your way to the book of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, that's going to start on page 807. Uh, last week, as we began this celebration of, of Advent together as a church, uh, we kicked off a new series in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're jumping around a little bit in these first two chapters uh, for, the, for the season of Advent. So next week, we'll actually come back to the second half of chapter 1. It's a really important passage about the birth of Jesus. Um, so we'll come back to that. We didn't just, just skip that. But for this week, we're moving forward to the beginning of, of chapter 2. Uh, perhaps like many of you, last week, uh, I found myself putting up Christmas lights. Anybody else put up Christmas lights this past week? Between Thanksgiving and, and uh, I guess, that week after that? Every year, when you put up Christmas lights, there's always like the obligatory strand or two of lights that when you plug it in to test it out, half of it doesn't work. It worked last year when you put it away. This year, for whatever reason, it doesn't. When that happens, and it always happens, always, you're faced with a decision in that moment. Am I willing to put the time and energy into going bulb by bulb through the, the strand that's not working and seeing if I can find the one that's causing the problem? Because when you do that, you run a risk. You run the risk of getting to the end. It's actually a, an above-average chance that you'll do that anyway, and you'll still get to the end, and it still won't, it still won't work. And that, if you're anything like me, makes you susceptible to go on like a, a Chevy Chase and Christmas vacation kind of epic tantrum of kicking lights and things like that. So, so do you risk that, or do you just say, it's not working, let me go buy another $3 strand of lights and let's start, let's start from scratch. And more and more in the last couple of years, I've opted for, for the latter uh, of those two, those two choices. Uh, as that happened to me last week, the conspiracy theorist in me came alive a little bit. Like, what if this is the design of the manufacturers of these Christmas lights? 
and they put some kind of innate defect in these because they know that, and they're hedging their bets that you and I won't take the time to go back through those lights and we're just going to throw them out and we'll, we'll buy, buy a, new, a new one. I think that's quite possible that that, that that might be part of what's happening. But here's the parallel to where that fits in with, with what we're going to read in the Gospel of Matthew. One of the things that Matthew emphasizes, this is Matthew's account. He's one of the 12 followers of Jesus. It's his account of the person and work of Jesus. And one of the things he emphasizes in his specific account is that Jesus is a new beginning. He's a new beginning. It's a, he's a new beginning on a cosmic scale. So he's a new work in the redemptive history of God, what God has been doing in the world. He's a new work in that. He also, in an immensely personal way, invites each one of us to a new beginning of our own. And there's something deep within each of us that longs for exactly that, that longs for a new beginning. We see probably a lot of things in our own lives and in the world around us that we want to be different we, we long for something new or something to be renewed. And we would all point to things in our lives and in our world and say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way that, that it's meant to be. And that's a little bit like whatever that defect is that causes half of the strand of Christmas lights to not work. There are these defects and these gaps and these shortcomings that are inherent to our lives. And the biblical concept for that, the word the Bible would use for that, is sin. And it's as we rebel against the God who who made us, it really corrupts and it fractures everything. It corrupts us. It corrupts all of what God has created and called good. And so truly, things are not the way that they are meant to be. And our awareness, it's our awareness then of those defects and those shortcomings, that sin, as we become aware of that, as we experience that in our lives, That's what creates the desire in us for what is new and what is different and what is better. So we have this longing for for this new beginning, but we only have that longing, we only experience that longing as we recognize what's wrong with the old. And one of these defects, one of these fractures that's common to all of us is insecurity. Insecurity. We as human beings, we as people are riddled with insecurities. And the specifics vary from person to person. The severity of insecurity varies from person to person. But nobody's exempt from this. Everybody is insecure in one way or another. And we're often even then insecure about our insecurities. Like we wish that we didn't have them, or when we know that we do have them, we wish that other people didn't know that we had them. Here's what I want us to see this morning. Though insecurity in us is an embodiment of sin, it's an embodiment of our brokenness, and though we need to therefore fight against the damage that that insecurity does to us and to others, those insecurities also have another purpose. They're meant to stir in us a longing for the new beginning of Jesus. And so I just would invite you, with whatever kind of insecurity you experience in your life, to consider that as we move into our scripture passage for this morning. This morning, we're looking at an account of the Magi, these wise men who come from the East to see Jesus. It's a fairly well-known account of of the Christmas story. But as this story unfolds, it unfolds against this backdrop of a clash of two different kingdoms. There's an old kingdom headed by a man named Herod, and and his kingdom is characterized by a lot of insecurity. 
And there's a new kingdom ushered in by Jesus. And his kingdom is characterized by a kind of security that's only possible through this new beginning that he has come to, to initiate and to bring. So listen for that. You can follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. God, thank you that your word is filled with gifts and treasures for us that we can learn so much that pertains to our lives today. And I pray that we would see this morning what we can learn about the the stark difference between the kingdom of Herod and the kingdom that you have come to initiate and inaugurate. Work in our hearts. Help us to expect and anticipate your second coming as we consider these things. Let me pray this in your name. Amen. So I want to spend the rest of of our time this morning looking at Uh, This portrait of contrast between these two kingdoms. The kingdom of Herod, on one hand, the kingdom of heaven, on the other hand. One is a kingdom characterized by rampant insecurity, and the other by really a radical kind of security that that the rulers of other kingdoms of the earth have never known. And we see the differences really in this text highlighted in, in three ways. The origin of power, that kingdom's posture toward outsiders, and that kingdom's treatment of enemies. Origin of power, posture toward outsiders, and treatment of enemies. So first, let's talk about the origin of power. Verse 1 here in Matthew chapter 2 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So who's King Herod? Uh, King Herod was a man born in 73 B.C., And he came to rule over this territory of Judea. It was a Roman Empire-occupied territory of Judea. He came to rule that territory in 37 B.C. There's a fascinating story to the way that Herod became king over this region. Herod himself was not actually part of the ancestral line of kings. Herod, by genealogy, was an Idumean. He traced his lineage back to the Edomites, which is an ancient group uh, in the ancient Near East, Uh, tracing its lineage all the way back to Esau, Jacob and Esau, the Edomites. 
And they often warred against the people of God. So how did Herod then become positioned to become king over Judea? Well, the way he did it was by marrying into the family. He, he found a way to marry into the family. The thing that makes that particularly shady in Herod's case is that while he did that, he was actually married to somebody else. So he was married to another woman. He saw an opportunity to become king over Judea by marrying into this family, so he disowned his first wife and the son that the two of them had together, put them away, and married into the family where he could then become king. So the origin of Herod's power is a counterfeit authority. Counterfeit authority. He manipulated and jockeyed his way into position to become king. And this isn't just something that we know today, like looking back on history. His contemporaries, the Jews of that day in Judea, knew this, most of them, just as well as you and I do today. So Herod was viewed by most people, rightfully so, as a usurper to that throne. When that's the origin of your power, it is guaranteed that your kingdom will be characterized by insecurity. So everybody knows around him that Herod doesn't belong on the throne. Even more, and this is more subtle, Herod himself knows that he doesn't belong on that throne. He may have convinced himself that he's supposed to be there. He may do huge shows of bravado to try to prove that he should be there. But if you come to power through a counterfeit authority like that, if you come to power through your own manipulation and your own jockeying for position then you're going to inevitably experience a deep-seated insecurity that comes from sitting in a chair that you don't really belong in. And maybe, maybe some of us have experienced something like that in our own lives. Many of us in this room are educated, upwardly mobile people, capable and competent and talented people. And so many of us, therefore, have the ability to manipulate our circumstances, to see a, a place that we want to occupy and to somehow jockey for position to, to get there. But if and when you've done that, if and when you and I have done that, insecurity lurks close by. Because we can't kid ourselves into thinking that the origin of how we get to where we are doesn't somehow catch up to us in one way or another. So contrast that, Herod's origin of power, with the kingdom of heaven. These wise men come from the east and they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And the language there is really intentional. There's someone who has been born a king. Not born to become a king, but born king. Born with a kingly status from his birth. And immediately that triggers Herod's insecurity. Of course it does. Of course it does. It's like in Robin Hood when King Richard the Lionheart comes back from the Middle East and all of a sudden Prince John has to answer for like what he's been doing while King Richard's been gone. He, he gets really nervous. He has to answer for using that throne in, an, in an, imp- an improper way. If you sit in a chair that you don't belong in, if you abuse the throne of the king when you're actually not the king, you're going to be really insecure when the real king shows up. So when the wise men speak here of someone who has been born king, Herod is really troubled. He's really unsettled. He's exposed as a fraud, and his insecurity springs to life. Now, over and against that counterfeit authority of Herod, we have the genuine authority of King Jesus. And in verses 5 and 6 here in Matthew chapter 2, the chief priests and the scribes quote from the Old Testament prophet Micah. And they're quoting there from Micah chapter 5. It reads like this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... 
From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. See, Jesus has genuine authority. As we saw last week in the genealogy that Matthew begins his gospel with, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of David. And Micah here in this prophecy foretells of this ruler that will come from of old, from ancient days. Well, it doesn't get more ancient of days than Jesus. He's the one who is the agent of everything that exists. He created everything that is. So there's no manipulating, there's no need to manipulate or jockey for position. Jesus, because of who he is, rightfully belongs on the throne of a king. And when a kingdom's origin of power is of genuine authority, that means that that kingdom itself will be characterized by security. There's no fear lurking that the real king's going to show up. This is the real king. He's in the right place. He is the one who belongs on the throne. So not only is this king himself secure on the throne, but his people are likewise secure. And that's why Micah foretells in that prophecy, they shall dwell, they being the people of God, shall dwell secure, and that that this ruler who will come will be their peace. So this is one difference between a secure kingdom and an insecure kingdom. Another difference, second, it's posture toward outsiders. It's posture toward outsiders. Who are these people who come from the east? Depending on your translation that that you have, it might say wise men, it might say kings, uh, it might use the original word. The original word is magi. And that word in history is used for really a variety of people. So it's hard to pinpoint exactly who these people are. But for sure, they would be some type of learned men, very educated, very scholarly, and who is part of that scholarly learning, also dabbled in things like astrology, probably somewhat in the magic arts, dream interpretation, things of that nature. It wasn't until um, looking back from the 3rd century that we see the tradition emerge that they were called kings. So we're not exactly sure if they were rulers over certain things or or not. Uh, We also don't really know how many there were. Uh, The number of the common conceptions that there were three, um, that comes actually because there were three gifts, and we make the assumption that there's like one gift per Magi. Matthew actually doesn't give us uh, a specific number of of how many there were. So I apologize in advance for ruining your nativity scene at home. (laughs) It may or may not be, well, there's a whole other thing we can get to there. The shepherds were a different time than the Magi. We We could kind of break that apart. But for today, we don't know the specific number of Magi. In the midst, though, of these unanswered questions, there is something that comes through crystal clear in Matthew's account of this, that these are outsiders, The Magi are outsiders. They aren't Jews. They aren't part of the family line of Abraham. So how are these outsiders going to be received by each of these two different kingdoms? Because there's a really big difference. The insecure kingdom of Herod uses outsiders. It uses them. So these Magi come searching for this one born king. And Herod gathers the chief priests and the scribes of the Jews around him. They confirm his fears. Actually, yeah, someone is going to be born king. So in verse 7, he summons the Magi back secretly, it says, and he gathers information from them. And then he sends them out, unbeknownst to them, as scouts, really scouts for his own treachery. Scouts for his own scheming that he's doing. 
Herod's posture here toward the Magi is utilitarian. They're only as good to Herod as the benefit that they can bring him in that moment. So he doesn't really care. He lies and deceives them. He, he sends them out as his, as his unknowing scouts under the guise that he's going to go join them in their worship of this one that they have come to see. But we know his real motive underneath that, and we read this a few verses after what we just finished reading today, is that he's going to initiate a mass murder of all of the male children in that region. This is what happens in insecure kingdoms. And this is actually also what happens in our own insecurity. When our lives are characterized by insecurity, we will inevitably take a utilitarian posture toward outsiders, toward other people. We will want other people, and especially outsiders, to do something or to be something for us. And the benefit that they bring us in a given moment is really all the value that they have to us. Have you ever treated somebody that way? Of course you have. We all have treated people that way. And maybe you needed this person to, to do your bidding. Maybe you needed to do their bidding specifically so you could show them that like you're in charge in this situation and they are not. Maybe you needed their approval. Maybe you needed them to recognize your gifts and your abilities. That's a little more subtle, but actually, it's just another way of using people to get something that you think you need, to get something that you want. One way or another, you look to that person to use them in a way that benefits you. Now contrast that with the secure kingdom of heaven. Where, the, where insecure kingdoms use outsiders, the secure kingdom of Jesus is the one that welcomes the outsider. And we saw this some in the genealogy that we looked at last week. God's promise to Abraham was to bless all the nations of the earth. Not just this one family line, but all nations of the earth. And we read last week at, in our first week in the, at the Advent wreath, from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, where the prophet foretells that nations shall come to your light. Well, what we have in Matthew chapter 2 is a very literal fulfillment of that. Whatever, whatever caused this astrological phenomenon, this light in the sky, there's this light that has appeared and it has drawn the nations, these men from the east, to the light of King Jesus. And notice something really significant here in this passage. These outsiders are magi. Okay, so they're at least somewhat involved in astrology. That's how they get to where they are. They're also very likely dabbling in things like the magic arts and sorcery and dream interpretation, things that are all deemed unbefitting of people who worship the one true God. But notice here that Matthew makes no mention of them renouncing those things before they come to Jesus. He makes no mockery of their involvement in those things. Those things are actually mocked in the Bible, in the Old Testament. They're not mocked here by Matthew. Instead, and this is a really striking juxtaposition that emerges here, the Magi are the ones who emerge in this story as the faithful ones. They are the ones who emerge faithful. It's not the Jewish leaders. It's not the chief priests and the scribes. It's not the insiders who emerge faithful here. It's the outsiders. Those insiders, they know the scriptures, they quote the prophet Micah, but that's all they do. They don't do anything beyond quote it. In this passage, they actually appear to be better servants of the counterfeit kingdom of Herod than they do of this new kingdom of heaven. It's the outsider, it's the magi who best recognize Jesus for who he is and actually respond accordingly. They bring him these expensive gifts 
of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And it's the Magi who it says this, this great line, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Is there a way to put more joy into a few words than that? I don't think so. But though they don't have this insider knowledge, they are the ones who come closest to perceiving the worth of what they have found of King Jesus, this baby. And the juxtaposition there serves to show us that in the kingdom of heaven, outsiders are welcomed. And just as that's true as Jesus inaugurates this new beginning, this new kingdom, so it's true today. The implications here for us is that we are to embody the welcome of the kingdom of heaven toward outsiders. We are to be the the hands and feet, tangible expression of the welcome of Jesus. And practically for us, that means that we can't put unnecessary obstacles in the way of people who want to come and see him. We don't require that people stop sinning before they come to Jesus. We don't require that they put themselves together. We don't require that they look or speak or think a certain way. To do that would really have excluded ourselves from ever coming in the first place. And though I think all of us know that, at least in theory, if our perspective is characterized by insecurity, then our initial immediate response to outsiders, to people who look or speak or think differently than you and I do, will be to will be marked by fear, for one, and will be to hold them at a distance rather than to invite them to come and to welcome them. The secure kingdom of Jesus says, Come. Come and see. And come now. Don't wait. If you wait until you're better, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. When a secure king reigns over a secure kingdom, there's no need to fear that the outsiders are going to mess this up. right? And praise God for that. Because if if the kingdom of heaven was characterized by insecurity, then you and I were never getting in. Because we were going to mess it up. In that case, the best outcome for our lives would have been to just serve some kind of utilitarian purpose of God. Like pawns in a chess game. But Jesus' kingdom is a secure kingdom. And we're not utilitarian to him. We are loved by him. We are welcomed by him. And therefore, we offer the same welcome to outsiders that we ourselves received when when we were outsiders. So there's a difference here in the origin of power. There's a difference in our posture toward outsiders. The last difference we see is in each kingdom's treatment of enemies. In the kingdom of Herod and other insecure kingdoms like it, enemies are a threat. Enemies are a threat. So you eliminate the threat. History records that that Herod was notorious for eliminating his enemies and eliminating potential threats. So this second wife that he distanced himself and divorced himself from his first wife and disowned his first son, married into this second wife's new family, he eventually murders that second wife. He also murders at least two of his own sons. And then beyond that, there were several quote-unquote accidents that happened where problem people for Herod all of a sudden weren't around anymore. Bathtub drowning accidents and, and things of that nature. It's, for us, it's like, it's like uh, Goodfellas or something like that. Like Herod, Herod was like the original godfather long before the godfather came, came around. So when the Magi come looking for this baby who's born king, that's a major threat to this counterfeit king, Herod. 
He's troubled, it says. And it says all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. Why are they troubled? Well, it's not that they don't want him. It's not that they're concerned that he wouldn't be king anymore. They'd be great with that. They saw him as a usurper to the throne. They're troubled because knowing insecure king that he is, they know, they anticipate that he's going to respond with something incredibly destructive. And they're absolutely right about that. Because we read in verse 16 that Herod is the one who orchestrates this mass murder of every male child in the region under the age of two. And that is a tragedy on a huge scale. But I'd invite you to consider this. It actually fits perfectly with who Herod is and where he's come from. It's the natural outworking of an insecure kingdom. You eliminate your enemies as potential threats. But what of this new kingdom inaugurated by Jesus? In a secure kingdom, ruled by a secure king, you don't eliminate your enemies. You reconcile your enemies. You ransom your enemies. You take the initiative to put away the enmity and the hostility so that your enemies can become friends, can become brothers, can become sisters, can become co-heirs of the same kingdom. And that's why Jesus has come. This is why the genuine King of the Jews has been born. He's been born to save the sons of earth, as we'll sing together this season, to give them second birth. He's been born not to condemn the world, the Gospel of John tells us, not to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. And he's been born so that one day he would make peace by the blood of his cross. Reflecting on exactly that, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes on to say, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, while we were still rejecting and rebelling against this king, we were not eliminated as potential threats. And instead, paying the costly price of his own life for us, Jesus restores enemies to peace with God. See, in an insecure kingdom, enemies must die to prop up the king. But in a secure kingdom... The king himself will die to reconcile his enemies. It's a totally new beginning that Jesus has brought. To not only be people who welcome the outsider, but also reconcile our enemies, will take a kind of security that would be completely foreign to you and me, if not for the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the reality is, and you probably are feeling this yourself, left to ourselves, we are a lot more like Herod and his kingdom than we are like Jesus and his kingdom. Whatever our kingdom might look like or entail, we don't call it that often, but our own lives or our family or our friends or our workplace or whatever our kingdom might entail, we're prone to live out of a deep-seated insecurity in those places. So the question for us you know, where, where do you live out of that insecurity in your own life? Uh, perhaps you have manipulated circumstances or jockeyed for position to get what you wanted. Perhaps you have used people to give you something you, you wanted or, or something that you thought you needed. Perhaps you've pursued eliminating potential threats 
Probably not by killing them. I don't think that's part of any of your story in here. It might be. But perhaps you've pursued eliminating potential threats in other ways rather than pursuing reconciliation. Whatever it is, here's the thing we need to see. Insecurity is common to all of us. And it's this embodiment of our sin. It's this embodiment of our brokenness. So we do need to fight against the damage that that does to others and to ourselves. But before we can even begin to do that, before we can even begin to fight against the damage that it does, we need to see insecurity as one of these defects that is innate to us as human beings that is meant to, at least in part, its purpose is to stir in us a longing for the new beginning of Jesus. Our insecurity is meant to show us that we make terrible kings of our own kingdoms. That we don't belong in the king's chair. That we are actually usurpers to that throne. Even the kingdom of our own life. So we need a different king. We need the real king to come and reign. So as we consider the difference of these kingdoms and we feel that longing ourselves, may our insecurities drive us to the security of Jesus. May our own insecurities drive us to his security. Don't ignore your, your insecurities when they come up. And, I, and, and, and this is true for men and women, but probably a little bit more for men. Don't mask them with bravado when they emerge. When they surface, let them wake you up and remind you of your need for a better king over a better kingdom. Let your insecurities drive you to the security of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is a secure kingdom. The author of Hebrews calls it a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So as citizens of a secure kingdom, may we, as the prophet Micah foretold, may we dwell secure. And may Jesus' security be our security. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we know what it is to be insecure and we know what it is to be usurpers to the throne of our own lives. We think that we would make a good king over our our lives and experience proves the exact opposite of that. So we know that we need you and we long for you and this insecurity in us is meant to point us to our need for you. So I pray that as we experience insecurity that it would drive us to you, that you would be the one who reigns over every aspect of our life and that we would live out of your security because we don't have it on our own. Thank you for being the true king, for having a genuine authority, for being so secure in your rule and reign that you die for your enemies rather than eliminate us as potential threats. That is, the, that is a reconciliation that can only come when you sit secure on your throne. And so as we come to this table and we recognize the the infinite cost that you paid to do that, your own body, your own blood given for us, we're grateful to you. We're grateful to you that your kingdom is secure and not insecure like ours. And as we come, would you strengthen us? Would you remind us that in you we can have security and we can dwell secure? I pray this in your name. Amen. We come to this table every week as a visible picture of the good news of Jesus. Um, And especially during Advent, it's helpful for us, I think, to remember that we don't only look backward when we come to this table. We look back and we commemorate what Jesus has already done. 
in the giving of his body and his blood to rescue us from sin, to give us new life. We also at this table get to look forward. We get to anticipate. Jesus says to his disciples when he institutes his, uh, the Lord's Supper that he will not partake of this again till he receives it with his disciples in the kingdom of God. And so we get to, as we come to this table every week, anticipate that he is coming again. We get to long for that together. We get to come rejoicing that he has done this, this work but that he will come again to complete it, to bring us to its, to its complete fulfillment. We know from the reliable testimony of Scripture, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of many. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You don't have to be a member uh, of this church or any particular Christian group or denomination to celebrate with us today. Uh, if you've put your faith in Jesus, we invite you to come to celebrate at the table. Uh, if you're here and you're not exactly sure what to do with Jesus, you're here just asking questions, wrestling through that, uh, just let me say again to you,